Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his, other, any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to, the pasture, to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. 
A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The grass withers and the flowers fade. So if you're not there already, turn to Genesis chapter 37, first book of the Bible. We have been making our way through Genesis over the past three years. Um, it hasn't taken us three years. We've just split it up into three sections that we've taken at the beginning of each year. Um, and so we are, we are in this final section. So we are in Genesis 37 this morning. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we are, are thankful for these truths that we uh, get to, to uh, sing together as your people, to remind each other of these things uh, that are true and praiseworthy um, concerning who you are and who you are in our lives. And so, God, I pray that you would um, keep those truths um, at the forefront of our minds now and even as we leave this place today, um, that we would be reminded of, of who you are uh, as God uh, in our life and in this world. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Let me grab my water real quick, guys. Thank you. So in uh, 1564... The great reformer John Calvin ended his pilgrimage on this earth and entered the rest of Christ. And his friend, who was present at the time, Theodore Beza, heard him say these words, You, O Lord, crush me, but it is abundantly sufficient for me to know that this is from your hand. In its history... Israel had to come back to this particular truth often. Israel was a people frequently perplexed by the evil that came upon them. They, they asked the same questions that we still ask when something tragic happens to us, especially when something tragic happens to God's people. We can think just a few weeks ago about the Nashville school shoot, Christian school shooting or any sort of martyrdom that happens across the world, and we are left asking questions like, where is God in the midst of that? Is God sleeping? Does God care about this? But maybe you're just asking yourself these questions on a, on a personal level. Maybe you're like Paul with his thorn in the flesh, and you keep crying out to God uh, to remove it, and he doesn't remove it. And it leaves you asking the same questions. Where is God? Is God sleeping? Does God care about me? Well, if this is you uh, today, but, but if it's not you today, it will be you at some point. So just ready yourself for that. The story of Joseph 
will and should offer you great comfort and great hope. That the comfort that comes from knowing that no matter how dark the circumstances, God's hand is always upon you. That's the old saying that we, we like to kind of say in passing, God is in control, and he is. That's true. Now, when we, when we approach a subject like this, you can't help but think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Uh, and we know that, at, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And the only way that we can say that with confidence and believe these words as Paul did and as Calvin did on his deathbed is by understanding that God's plan is perfect and good, whatever comes your way. So three ways I'd like us to begin to see this play out in our text this morning because it's, it is going to be the, the key theme to the entirety of the rest of the Genesis story. So three things I want us to see here. One is God's future plan foretold in the text here. Two is God's future plan beginning also in the text. And then three is God's ultimate plan being echoed in the text. So we see all of that here in Genesis chapter 37. So God's future plan foretold, if you're taking notes, God's future plan beginning, and then God's ultimate plan being echoed. So first, God's future plan foretold. So the story of Joseph uh, introduces a new section of Genesis that will carry us to the end of the book. And Genesis chapter 37 lays the foundation for all of this. It lays the foundation uh, for the crisis between Joseph and his brothers, and it foreshadows here in verses 2 through 11 the final resolution to the crisis. God's future plan is being foretold. But no one knows this yet, not even Joseph. All anyone hears right now at this point in the story are the enthusiastic and I would say annoying explanations of a younger brother and son concerning his dreams. Now dreams in the ancient world were were important and and people did place a lot of stock uh, in dreams as a means in which God spoke to his people. So there there were a very real way in which God spoke to his people. We've already seen God do this in the life of Jacob back in Genesis chapter 28 when God uses a dream to tell Jacob his plan. This is what I'm going to do. And he says that through a dream. And we see something similar happening in our text today. The dreams of Joseph are revealing God's future plan for not only Joseph, but also for God's people at large. So you could see this if this was on a movie screen. You could, you could see this depicted on the movie screen as sort of this flash forward as it begins, it doesn't give you a whole lot of answers, but you know something's coming. You know something's about to happen to this main character as it begins to develop the narrative around this person, this annoying, hated brother, eventually becoming one of the most powerful rulers in all of Egypt, which is sort of ironic when we remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
Both were discouraged to go to Egypt. And here God is sending Joseph into this very place he told Abraham and Isaac not to go. So it's an unexpected turn of events, to say the least, and not one that anybody would ever guess. So in these first 10 verses here, the focus is on this boy, Joseph. So an introduction to him is necessary. We learn very quickly that he's young. He's 17 years old. Right there in verse 2, it tells us that. Uh, and he's, in a, he's an apprentice shepherd to his older brothers. So he works under his older brothers. He's learning how to be a shepherd from them. And one of the first things that we learn about who he is comes in verse 2 as well. Because one of the first acts that, that, that we see from Joseph is that he gives a bad report concerning some of his brothers to his father. So I'm sure if you have younger siblings, this is something that has happened to you in your lifetime where you were uh, told on by, by this sibling and you, you recognize how annoying this sounds. So I read a couple of different opinions concerning this first act of Joseph. I know on my first reading of it, I was like, tattletale. The first thing that came to my mind was tattletale. That's what he did. So, so some say he was being a tattletale here and that he was actually giving, a, uh, giving his father a false report concerning his brothers, that he was sort of misrepresenting them and what, uh, whatever deed it was that they had done, he was misrepresenting them. So he wasn't telling the full truth. And maybe, maybe so, maybe that is. But, but even if he was giving an accurate report, which I believe he probably was giving an accurate report, given the evil we are about to see his brothers perform against Joseph. Evil just doesn't come upon us all of a sudden. It is very subtle. It works in small ways over time and gradually will explode into something major. Um, but even so, it doesn't make Joseph any less annoying to his brothers. But if it's an accurate report, and given the pattern we will see in Joseph's life, it's giving us an early glimpse into what kind of man God is making him into. That he is sensitive to the evil and the brokenness around him. And he is passionate about the righteousness of God overcoming such evil. So we could also say from verse 2 that Joseph is already showing himself to be faithful to his God. And we'll see that kind of unfold as the story moves on. Um, that he understands that, that God is at work in him already at the age of 17 as a teenager. But this also brings this, this, this kind of positive life, this is his kind of, his kind of uh, uh, going forth uh, and trying to invoke justice upon, upon the sin that is happening, even amongst his brothers, this also brings upon him some negative reactions or some negative consequences that tell us even more about who Joseph is. And we find out very quickly that he's the favorite son of his father. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. So the, the text tells us the reason Joseph was the favorite son is because he was the son of his father's old age. But that is sort of code 
for he was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And Jacob wasn't quiet about this favoritism either. It wasn't like he was just kind of giving him, you know, a little extra money here on the side and saying, hey, don't tell your brothers I'm doing this, but here's a little something extra for you this week. He was, he was very loud about this, so much so that he displays it symbolically by giving Joseph this famous coat that we've heard about. Now, this coat was probably a, a special dress coat, which would be distinguished from a, a, a normal coat or a normal robe uh, that the average man would have worn during this time. And the way that you would distinguish uh, sort of a dress coat from, or a dress robe uh, from, a, from a regular robe was the extra length that it had, and it also had longer sleeves. Because what your Bible probably says, if you have an ESV translation, or if you're really old school, you have a King James version of the Bible, it probably says coat of many colors. But this phrase can also be translated as a robe with long sleeves. Now, if you're familiar with the musical, Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, if we stuck with the translation of long sleeves, it would be Joseph in his amazing long sleeve dream coat. And that's just not as catchy. Um, so, so they stick with, with that particular uh, translation of that verse. But this coat, some Old Testament scholars have pointed out, was probably more than a symbol of just Jacob's favoritism. Because the adjective here, uh, long with sleeves, is used, it used in Scripture only one other time. And it's used this one other time to describe the robe of Princess Tamar, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18, that says, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So more than likely, what Jacob was doing was he was, he was publicly designating Joseph as ruler over the family. Already kind of preemptively, he was, he was giving Joseph charge over the family. So not only were Joseph's dreams declaring that he would rule over them, their father was doing the exact same thing. You were going to rule over your brothers. So it was very much like Jacob's mother did with him when he, she just kind of entered into the story and she kind of manipulated everything. And she's like, if the promise is true, I got to do something to make this happen. This is what Jacob is doing with his favorite son, Joseph. Now, there are a number of parallels in the story of Jacob when it comes to favoritism. Um, if you recall, Jacob was uh, also a favored son. Um, Genesis 25, 28 says, well, Esau, Esau and Jacob were both favored sons. So Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. She favored him over Esau which we know because we just came out of that story, leads to massive conflict and eventually leading, uh, leading to Jacob having to leave uh, and separate from his entire family. Some of them he never sees again. So Jacob also, another uh, act of favoritism, he also favored his one wife, Rachel, over his other wife, Leah, the two sisters. And we know this caused uh, tension it caused a lot of competition uh, amongst these sisters, but it also caused jealousy between them. 
Leah was able to have an abundance of children uh, while Rachel was unable to have children for, for quite some time. And now, Jacob is favoring the firstborn son of his favorite wife over all of his other sons. And this too leads to jealousy, to hatred, and the eventual separation of Joseph from his family as well. So the obvious application here is if you have kids or you want to have kids one day, don't show favoritism to one child over the other. I, think, I, hope, that's, I hope that's obvious. <laughs> but it is a warning because I know I have five children. It is very easy to begin to gravitate towards one child over the other. Because through favoritism and through this favoritism that we see in the scriptures that is obvious to the older brothers, a hatred grows amongst them towards Joseph. Which is something else we find out about Joseph is that he is hated. His brothers do not like him. They despise him. And this, this hatred grows more intense as the story progresses, especially as Joseph begins to speak about his dreams. Look at verses 5 through 11 again. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. One thing I didn't really put in my notes here, but just kind of as a side note, I want you to see is that in this particular chapter, it is Joseph's brother, uh, brothers and father who interpret the dream. Joseph doesn't even interpret his own dreams. He just kind of lays it out there. And then later on in the story of Joseph, we'll see that Joseph is the one who begins to interpret other people's dreams. But I just thought that was an interesting observation here because Joseph's brothers are the ones that say, oh, you're, you're saying that you're going to rule over us, that we are going to bow down to you. Okay. And then in verse 9, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed Come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So both dreams tell the same story. And that story is Joseph will rule over his family. And the duplication of dreams is, is very important in the story of Joseph, um, as we'll see again in later chapters. But it does, it lets us know that this is something that is sure to come to pass. And Joseph himself says so after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams in chapter 41. He says to Pharaoh, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. It is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So here you have the favored son 
prancing around in his royal robe, telling dreams to his family that say he will rule over them. Not very tactful. But he was 17, so, but no offense to teenagers, but they're not the most tactful at times with their words. But nonetheless, Joseph's dreams are prophetic. These dreams are God's future plan foretold, and these dreams will come to pass. It is fixed by God. And we see the fruition of this prophecy uh, begin to take place and begin to take shape um, almost immediately as God's future plan begins in verses 12 through 36. Now, this part of the narrative may be surprising to some of you because we see uh, God using the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to begin fulfilling his future plan of making Joseph a ruler in Egypt. So most of you are familiar with this, this, this story in Genesis. We're familiar with the book of Genesis, uh, and, and some of us have read the story of Joseph numerous times on numerous occasions, or maybe you just kind of heard it when you were a kid in Sunday school, um, and you kinda, you're familiar with it. So you probably already know the ending. You know where Joseph is headed. You know that he is one day going to be out of this mess that he is in, and you know that he is going to be in a, in a powerful, comfortable position. So I want you to imaginatively put yourself in the place of Joseph right now in this story. Joseph doesn't know the outcome. Joseph is this young kid who's had these crazy dreams that are saying that he is going to rule over his family. He has no idea how the plan of God will play out in his life. None at all. And he was a man. Joseph was a man at the end of the day, which means he wasn't perfect. And so he too had to be asking the same questions I mentioned earlier. Where is God? Does God care about me? Especially as he makes this tragic fall from the favored one with his fancy coat to, to the fallen one at the hands of his evil brothers. So in verses 4, 5, and 8, we see the mounting hatred that Joseph's brothers have towards him. So in verse 4, it says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They hated him so badly that they couldn't even speak to him. They didn't, they didn't even want to hear a word come out of his annoying little stupid mouth. They hated him that much. And then in verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And then in verse 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And this hatred drives them to this strong desire, this strong desire to murder their brother. Not just ignore him, but actually put, the, put him out of their lives. Look at verses 18 through 20. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. This is called premeditated murder. And we're seeing it unfold right here. They've already murdered Joseph in their heart, which causes them to ignore him as if he's dead. So they try to shun him to maybe, maybe that will make him go away, but that doesn't work because he just keeps talking. And so that doesn't work because he, he begins to tell them all about these dreams. And then they, then they grow, eventually grow jealous of him, which in, in the context of our situation here seems to be a stronger and deeper passion than hatred. So Paul warns the Galatian church in the New Testament of such an emotion in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, when he calls jealousy a work of the flesh and then goes on to lump it together with all of these other sins. Other sins that we would go, yes, those are gross, those are disgusting. That is sin, but jealousy is right there in the mix of it. Let me just read them, read them for you. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because jealousy will corrupt your heart and blind you to the ways in which God is working. Joseph's brothers are a perfect example of this. They have, they, they have never once stopped and said, well, maybe God is doing something here, guys. I mean, these are dreams. Our dad had a dream like this, and God did something in him. They've never stopped to really think about that or consider that. At least we don't think they have, because we don't have it here in the text. But they are so jealous of him. And they hate him with such a passion that they want to rid their brother from the earth. Now, a couple of things are happening here that that point us to the future fulfillment of God's plan. So first, you have Joseph's older brother, Reuben. So so he holds his brothers off uh, of the way in which they intended to murder their brother um, because they wanted wanted this bloody murder to go down. I don't know how that was going to happen, if they were going to slit his throat or stone him to death or whatever they were thinking to do. All we know is it was going to be bloody. It was going to be a mess. And so Reuben steps in and suggests in verse 22, Shed no blood, brothers. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness and leave him there. To which they readily agree. And so I, I, want you to, I want you to understand that what they essentially agree to here is to, instead of a bloody death, they agree to torture their brother by starving him to death. So I don't know what the bloody death was, but it, it was possibly a quicker, less painful death than starving to death in a pit. But Reuben's intentions were rescue. He had, some, he had some good there. He wanted to come back and get him and restore him to their father. Everything is okay. Everything is okay. Um, and he, went, he wanted to restore him to his father. So he had, some, he had some good intentions there. 
but that were probably driven by his desire to be the favored son again since losing his position back in chapter 35 uh, when he sleeps with his father's wife. He loses his position. And so Reuben is thinking about a way that he can get back into the good graces of his father. And so this is one way he does that. But nonetheless, he was seeking to do something good in the midst of evil, which sets up God's rescue plan of Joseph perfectly because we know this to be God's hand orchestrating all the details. He is the one who is in control, remember. Even though it may seem chaotic, even though it may seem like evil is winning today, God's hand is still there. So this might be something that you struggle with. You, you look around this world and you, maybe you're a news junkie and you're constantly looking at things and you're seeing all of these murders take place and war is at hand and all of these evil uh, deeds are being done and it does seem like evil has the upper hand. And you might be tempted to believe that God is not in control any longer. That, that for some reason he's stopped caring and that he's moved on with a new creation somewhere else in the cosmos. And he's decided to start over. But that's simply not the case. Even, even if it seems like evil is mounting, even if it seems like it's overwhelming at times, God is still at work. We're seeing this sort of evil triumph in Joseph's brothers' actions as they believe they are not only killing their dream-filled, annoying little brother, but they also believe they are killing God's plan. When they say, say words like, we'll see what becomes of his dreams, is their way of saying, we are going to kill not only our brother, but these dreams from God as well. So notice in verse 23 that before throwing Joseph into the pit, they, uh, they strip him of his coat and uh, throw him into this pit after they've done so. Essentially what they've done is, they've, is the symbolic action here of defrocking Joseph of his special status as the next ruler of his family by stripping him of his royal robe. So making the main title declaration of you will not rule over us. You will never rule over us. But also making the subtitle declaration here, God is not in control. God's plan will not prevail in our brother's life. Yet what we see here in the entirety of this scene is God's clear presence in taking Joseph right where he wants him through the evil intent of his brothers. And that's, that's played out, through, out uh, next through the suggestion of his other brother, Judah, who says in verses 25 through 28, then they sat down to eat, so they, they threw him into a pit to starve to death, and then they just carry on business as usual, and they start eating their lunch as their brother begins to starve, which is crazy to me. But they sat, they, then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands, hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, 
And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. silver. And then key phrase here, they took Joseph to Egypt. So that last sentence is key because it states that God has taken Joseph to exactly where he wants him to be. God's future plan is beginning, even through the evil doings of these brothers, but it's also an echo of God's ultimate plan, what God is ultimately doing in his people. So the story of Joseph is probably one of the most, uh, probably uh, the the more uh, analogical to the story of Christ in the book of Genesis. And one of the main analogies of Joseph's, Joseph's life to that of Jesus's was that, it, it, that I, want, I want you to see this this morning. And the reason I want you to see this this morning is because the idea of God using the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to fulfill his good purposes in Joseph's life, I recognize, can be off-putting to some and hard to understand for others especially if you've experienced suffering at the hands of an evil person. So I want you to see right from the beginning this echo of God's ultimate plan. Because not only is God going to use Joseph to preserve his people, uh, the Israelites, he's also, he also uses Joseph as a way in which to see Christ. Uh, he's, he's using Joseph to point to Jesus. So as God used this story of Joseph to teach Israel that he can use even, even evil human deeds to fulfill his plan of salvation, so Jesus teaches the church that God can use evil human deeds to fulfill his plan of salvation. This was true for Jesus. He, we just highlighted this reality a couple of weeks ago during Holy Week where we remember Christ's march to the cross we, we purposefully put ourselves in that situation to remember his sufferings and to remember his death and, and what he did for us on the cross. We just proclaim that over and over again uh, throughout the worship service, through song and through the Apostles' Creed. And all of that happens at the hands of evil men. In all of those acts, God is using evil men to fulfill his plan of salvation. And if he doesn't use these evil men to do this, we have no plan of salvation. It's even written in the Old Testament that he would do so. In the prophecy concerning Judas, who was Jesus' betrayer, uh, in Psalm 41.9, it proclaims, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That is a prophecy looking forward to this this man who would betray Jesus for a very small amount of money. An evil man. And this is 1,000 years before Jesus comes to earth. Which tells us that this was God's plan from the very beginning to use evil men like Judas to bring about his plan of salvation. And this is true for us as well. If we, uh, we, we had read uh, for us earlier by Gavin in the service, Luke 21, when Jesus himself tells his disciples in verses 16 through 18, 
you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they, let me just read, let me just read, read that. The they there is referring to parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They will put you to death. They will murder you. They will kill you. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then Jesus offers this word of comfort. But not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be murdered by the closest people to you. You will be hated by everyone. But not a hair of your head will perish. And then couple this with Romans 8.28 that I read earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I think if I were to survey the Christians in the room right now, I would guess that the majority of you would say you want a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. Like that is your desire. That is why, that's why you're here, partly here today, because you want to grow deeper in that particular relationship. At least I hope that's why you're here. And the reality of that desire is that God uses everything in your life to bring you into a deeper relationship with him. And sometimes that includes the evil acts of others against you. Now the encouragement and hope in this is that as Christians, we have an answer to the problem of evil. Like, we're not dumbfounded by that as the world would be dumbfounded by it. We, we have an answer, and that answer is found in Christ. And it's this big God that we have who is orchestrating all things for good. The author, David, the, the late David Pallison, um, he died a few years ago, he wrote in his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering, uh, high recommendation if you want a, a good, concise, short book on that. But he says this, <clears throat> a trial or suffering brings out what is most wrong and God brings about what is most right as he meets you and works with you. Affliction is, itself is not good, but God works what is very good bringing the ignorant and wayward back home. Faith's endurance and alert dependency on the Lord is one of the Spirit's finest works, and you bear that fruit only when you have lived through something hard. Now, for those who are not Christians in the room or who might listen to this at a later time, I don't expect you to understand this immediately. I don't expect you to get that. You probably, you might think that's crazy. But what I would ask you to consider is, what do you do with the problem of evil? How do you compartmentalize that? What do you, how do you think through that? I know for some it's to just blame God. But for others it's just to let it hang out there in oblivion or try to ignore it. But what is your answer to that? Because what God has done with the problem of evil is he has put it all on his son at the cross. 
The defeat of evil has begun. The act of making all things new in Christ is currently underway. Even as we consider the story of Joseph over the next several weeks, what we see now doesn't look good for Joseph. He's in a, he was in a pit. Uh, he, his brothers were trying to destroy him, trying to murder him. He's sold into slavery. We know that's not good. There is not a lot of hope. It doesn't look good for him. It looks like evil is triumphing over him. But just as it didn't look good at the cross for Jesus on that day and the day following, his disciples are looking at it and going, what are we to do? What is going to happen to us? We thought he was the Messiah. It looks like evil has the upper hand. But let me, let me just encourage you. Hope is on the horizon. The resurrection, we can say, because of the resurrection of Jesus, is coming. So now I want us to take a couple of minutes to silently reflect upon it. Because this is, this is, this is for me at least, it's, this is heavy. I don't know if it, if it feels heavy to you, but it feels heavy. Um, I don't know everybody's story here, but I'm sure there are some of you who have suffered at the hands of evil. And I'm deeply sorry for that. So I want us to, to just take a moment of silence. And you can bow your heads, close your eyes, whatever you want to do. And I want you to reflect upon these things as we have considered this hard truth concerning how God works in your life and in this world. Thinking about, thinking about how God's hand has led you. Even looking into to that trauma in your own life. And to recognize that God's hand has always been upon you. That, as Francis Schaeffer uh, used to say, that he is there and he is not silent. That he never sleeps or slumbers. That he does care. And he doesn't stop caring for you. So just take a moment of silence and just kind of meditate upon that truth about who God is in your own life now. And then I'll close this in prayer. Great God of your people, though all around the world it seems that evil is prospering, that it seems overwhelming, Uh, maybe even to us personally right now in this moment, we are struggling with that truth that your hand is constantly upon us. So I pray even now, God, that you will remind us that, that you have not, nor will you ever abandon us. Even if the earth is swallowed up, even if we are delivered up to death by those closest to us, Jesus, we trust in your promise that not a hair on our head will be harmed. 
And so we're thankful for the story of Joseph that points this out to us so clearly that your hand is always upon us, guiding us in the way in which you would have us to go. And we're thankful for that. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.